Over the next several weeks, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, looking at the idea of the approaching light, Jesus coming near, Jesus coming to save humanity. Last week, we opened it up, and you remember we said that Luke was writing to Theophilus, and he was seeking to encourage him, to assure him about those things he had been taught. And so as we read through this, we have this understanding that the, the Gospel of Luke and these things we're reading here and now are not written to create sentimentality in us. But this is largely kind of where we have placed these birth narratives of Jesus, this, this, this storyline that we localize one time a year, it's at Christmas, and, and it, it creates sentimentality for us. And so whenever we read about Jesus being born of the Virgin, we kind of go back to being at our grandmother's house and we can smell, you know, stuff being cooked. Or for some of you, your grandmother's a terrible cook. And so Christmas time reminds you of burning food. And so it, it creates a sentimentality in us. And, and like, I'm not apart from this. I remember uh, those Christmases that we were home in the U.S. getting together with all my cousins at my great-grandmother's house and her making unbelievable jabs about my grandfather's weight. And so it would be something like this, you know, oh, buddy, dear, would you like another piece of pie? And my grandfather would take the pie, and she turned around, and she's like, oh, Lord, he's big. You're like, great, great, you can't, he's right behind you. And so, like, these are some of the memories I have for Christmas. My great-grandmother doling out food and then commenting about people's ever-increasing waistline. Like, I think she enjoyed this. But Christmas is, is, is kind of localized in those. And so I can remember some truly amazing Christmases with my family. I can, can remember some of these things. But as we read through the Gospel of Luke, it is not concerned with producing sentimentality in us. It's not concerned with producing these feelings of, of, of kind of yesteryear reflections. As we read the Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, we walk away with an incredibly impressive picture of God. Not a God who deals in sentimentality, not a God who's trying to give you better memories, but of a God who interjected, who interceded, who brought himself to bear, to be in time, and accomplished the impossible. And it says something about our God. So as we read through these verses, as we study them today, what I want to ask you is that you would, you would put the pause button on your kind of sentimentality factors in your life, that you would stop that you would try and keep yourself from slipping into fond memories. Or, oh, I remember hearing this passage, and I remember being a little kid on the pew with my parents. If, if we would just be able to go through this in as much as we can with fresh eyes. And that if we could, as we would go through this, that we would allow our hearts to be shaped and transformed by the power of God's Word. Amen? Amen. Look how it opens up. We've, we've just come through this uh, accounting of the angel Gabriel appearing to Zechariah. He has left him mute. He has left him with the inability to, to speak, to carry on conversation. And so Zechariah knows that his son will be born. He knows that he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. But, but he's unable to speak. And then our passage opens up. And what, the way Luke has laid this out, these are happening in strict chronological order. Look at how he begins it in verse 26. In the sixth month... The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And so we're given some setting, we're given some, some kind of background. And so as we look at this, Gabriel's been busy. He's been busy. 
We haven't seen him written about since Daniel, and now here, within this first chapter, we see two occasions of him showing up and investing himself in someone's life. And so he goes and he visits with Zechariah, and what he tells him is, is you're going to have this son be born to you? And Zechariah's response is, but you remember, my wife is what? Old. Yeah, my wife is old. This can't possibly happen. She's advanced in years. And so Zechariah has trouble believing this. The angel leaves him mute. And what we see here is it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, for you and I, Nazareth, if somebody were to say something about it, you'd say, Oh, I know Nazareth. That's where, that's where Jesus is from. And so you have these kind of fond feelings about it. But the interesting thing is you go through, uh, the city of Nazareth was a dive. It was... It was not a place where if somebody said, oh, you're from, you're from Nazareth or you're from this place? And they'd say, oh, what a wonderful city. I've heard they have wonderful homes there in the communities and the schools. Oh, there just must be so amazing. You see the city of Nazareth, and as we get a picture in the Gospel of John, it was a dime. Now, when I lived in the Houston area, people often said, oh, this is kind of like Porter. This is kind of like Porter. Porter is a place that nobody really lives. A lot of people drive through. And all it's ever known for is having a Walmart and a lot of crime. Right? And so this was kind of a porter in this area. And this is what this is known for. Now, some of you might know an area around here that would say the same things. But some of the other people in this room live in those places. So let's just leave them unsaid, okay? As I was actually going through this, I was thinking, oh, that's like... And I thought, oh, I can't say that. Better not say that. Some of you live there. And so as he's going, some of you give it that name. And as he's going through, look, he says he's born in Nazareth. Now, what, is, what do we find in the Gospel of John about Nazareth? Flip over to John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 1. Jesus is going around, and he's collecting disciples. He's linking up with some different guys. And what we find there, in John chapter 1, starting at verse 43, he goes and he meets with Philip. Philip goes and he talks to Nathaniel. In verse 45 says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of, everybody say Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Well, look, at, look at Nathanael's response. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It has a reputation, rightly so, of being a dive. It was overrun with Gentiles. It was overrun with Roman soldiers. It was a stopping point in between two major cities. But nobody really ever wanted to be said that they're from Nazareth. Now, this is an interesting comparison. Now, you remember last week we saw Zechariah and Elizabeth, and he is in Jerusalem. He's in the high city. He's in the place where the temple of God resides. And everybody knows Jerusalem. Everybody loves and reveres Jerusalem. But as we see Nazareth, it is a, a byword. It's not a pious city. It is a potmark on the backside of the nation. It is an unpleasant place. This is what Nazareth is. But what we find is this angel of the Lord goes to this horrible place. He goes to this byword. He goes to this downtrodden city. And look what he does. He goes to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. He is visiting an insignificant girl. 
Last week we saw the angel of Gabriel go and he visited a man who would be able to go into the temple, who would be able to offer the incense, a man of note, a man of of importance as far as those people around him. Now, in the unfolding story of God, we, we discover that he's relatively inconsequential outside of being the father of John the Baptist. But here we go to a girl, probably 14 years old, Nobody really knew her name outside of her parents. Nobody really cared anything about the city that she lived in. She likely could not read. And we find that God personally visits her in the person of Gabriel. He sends Gabriel to go and visit her. And so we see this word twice. We see that she's a virgin twice in there. And what he's trying to convey to us is not her righteous moral standing before God. He's not writing about this and describing it in, in, in essence to give us this. She's, she's just pristine. She's just perfect. She's never done anything wrong. As you'll read, she's a virgin. That's not why it is written. That's not what it's trying to convey. What he's trying to convey with that is her age. Now, age 13 was was the typical age when girls were given to be betrothed. And so this is how it would go. And so I've got three sons. And so I would go out and I would take one of my three sons and we'd kind of hit the streets and I'd be like, homely, 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 good home. And so I would go in and I would talk to this girl's father and say, look, I want to take my son. I'd like to, to, you know, have my son and your daughter be married together. And he would say, okay, my daughter, she's about a million dollars. And I'd say, what? He'd say, my daughter's about a million dollars. I'm sorry, it's something to my... I said, whew, Don Corleone there for a second, you scared me. And so in, in these days, the, the, the father of the boy would give money to the father of the girl. There are some of you who are raising daughters. You say, amen, let's bring that back. And so he would give money because in his home, he would be losing a helper. And in the, the father of the son's home, he would be gaining a helper. And so they would exchange... Uh, money, they would have a contract drawn up, and these two would be betrothed. They would not cohabitate, they would not live together, they would not consummate the relationship. And for the next year, typically, they would be in this betrothed relationship. And to, to break the period of betrothal was tantamount to divorce in this time because they were so united. They were they were contractually obligated to be together, and at the end of that year, she would go and she would move in with her betrothed. She would move in with her husband. But what we find is it, she has not yet moved in. She's entered into this betrothal relationship with Joseph, but she's not yet moved in with him. She is still at this time likely about 13. And so he goes and he talks to this young girl, and we find out that her name is Mary, Look what he says next. And he came and he, t- and he told her and he said to her, Greeting, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now as we read through this, we understand that historically in church history, that this short little segment here has created terrific problems for the church largely stemming from, from Catholic doctrine that, that teaches one, or, one of two things. One, Mary's perpetual virginity. Two, would be Mary's being full of grace. And so her having all of the gifting of the Spirit and being herself sinless from birth throughout life. 
Now, this is a teaching that came out of the church in the 19th century in the, in the Catholic Church. But what we see here is this is written in no such way to give that impression. In fact, that translation stems from a faulty understanding of the Latin translation of the Greek New Testament. And this is more than you wanted to know. And some of you less than you wanted to hear. But what we go on and read in this is look, look what he has said to her. Greetings, O favorable one. The Lord is with you. And so the question becomes... What in Mary's life has caused her to be favored by God? What in Mary's life has caused her to be favored by God? And the response, inasmuch as we're able to discern from what Scripture tells us, is nothing. It's nothing. It's not written in such a way that we would marvel and say, Oh, she's so cute. She only ever colored inside the lines. She did everything her parents told her to. She was the model child. We see none of that. Nothing. We're giving nothing to indicate that she is exceptional. We're giving nothing to indicate that she's anything other than an ordinary girl. Oh, favor when the Lord is with you. This is not an indication that Mary has done anything exceptional. This is absolutely an indication that God has done something exceptional for her. This idea of favor of one is the grace of God coming to bear to be in her life. And look what happens. She hears this terrific response, this terrific address from the angel. Now we've already seen this. Gabriel shows up and, and Zechariah sees him and he is freaked out. He is terrified. He is gripped with fear, wondering what exactly this angel is doing there. But Mary's response is a little bit different. Her trouble thought, or as she's trying to figure this out, she's trying to discern what sort of greeting this may be. What makes me favor? What makes me favor? What does he mean that the Lord is with me? What makes me favor? Mary's uh, trepidation, Mary's uncertainty stems from the greeting, not the angelic witness, not the an angel showing up. So look at this. She's trying to figure out just exactly what this greeting might mean. So the angel said to her, verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. When the angel of the Lord shows up, when Gabriel talks to Mary, he gives her this indication that God's grace is coming to bear in her life. We see this over and over again. God's grace is finding someone in the midst of their situation, and His grace comes to bear, to be applied to their lives. So we read this and we think, what, what did she do? She, she must have done something to deserve the favor of God. And what we recognize, it, it is not on the basis of what she had done. But it was on the basis of what God was preparing to do. Now, there's a, there's a distinction that we've already seen in the Gospel of Luke. You see, back in verse 6, in this discussion of Zechariah and Elizabeth, it said, and they were both righteous before God, so they were doing nothing wrong before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. If anyone deserved the favor of God, as far as we know in the Gospel of Luke, it would be Zechariah and Elizabeth. He had the ability to be called up to serve God. As our passage tells us, he was blameless. As our passage tells us, he faithfully walked out the commandments of the Lord. And all we know about Mary is that she was 
this girl who was betrothed. But yet the favor of God comes to rest on her. The grace of God comes to rest on her. She is favored by God. Look what the angel goes on to tell her, verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. He gives her this amazing prophecy. This amazing prophecy. Now, she is a virgin. She's never been with a man. And he comes in, and what he tells her is that she need not be afraid, that she's going to conceive and bear a son, and that she's going to call his name Jesus. Now, Luke does not give us a translation of what Jesus means. But in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew one twenty one, we find out that it means God saves. Or as the way Matthew records it there, it means Jesus, he will name him Jesus because he will save sinners from death. Mary is told she will be the bearer of the Messiah. The angel Gabriel had gone to Zechariah and he said that your wife will get pregnant, that she will bear the one who will prepare the way, that he will be in the spirit and the manner of Elijah. And now the angel of the Lord comes to this girl, this one who's still trying to find her way in the world, and what he tells her is that she will bear the Messiah. And pulling out of 2 Samuel chapter 7, he has this kind of loose paraphrase of the prophecy given there for the, for the continuation of the kingdom of David. Read this along with me again. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. Recognize that when, when they write there, Most High, it's, it's a substitution for God. God is the only one who is Most High. He will be the Son of God. She's told that she's going to be carrying the Son of God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. We see a key to the Messiah. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Another key of the Messiah. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And of his kingdom there will be no end. This is amazing promise that the Lord gives to this sweet girl. This is amazing promise that he that he gives to her, that he's seeking to communicate to her. And it's truly unbelievable. Psalm 89, verses 26 through 29, where you read the Psalms, is reflecting on 2 Samuel 7. And he says, He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. My covenant will stand Firm for him, and I will establish his offspring forever, and and as his throne, as the days of the heavens, Jesus' throne is unshakable. It's unending. God steps in and he seeks to reestablish his rule in humanity through this girl bearing, carrying the Messiah. That is a heavy thing to be told. That's a heavy load to carry. 
That's a, a, a daunting thing to be told. She's going to carry Jesus. But look at Mary's response. Mary's response, verse 34, she says, How would this be since I am a virgin? How would this be since I've not yet known a man? I'm still betrothed. She is asking a question of how in the world is this possible? Now you'll remember when Zechariah was visited by the angel, Gabriel said, look, your wife is going to go and she's going to have a baby. And what was Zechariah's response in verse 18? How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is, everybody say, old. My wife is old. How is this going to be? And so we recognize from his response that he disbelieves the possibility that it could come to happen. He's, this is why. Like, I'm old, she's ancient, ain't going to happen. And so Gabriel makes it so that he can't speak anymore on the basis of his disbelief. But one of the things we see here is that Mary has no such repercussions for her question, which gives us an indication that it wasn't so much of saying, oh, this is ridiculous. Be gone with you, away. But a matter of just like, just, just trying to figure it out. Like, how can it be? I'm this, you're saying that. Like, I know one plus one is, is two, but, but, but this, I, I, like, I just don't know how it's happening. So the angel responds to her. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child will be, will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, what the angel Gabriel is telling her is the same language used in Exodus chapter 40. Now, in Exodus chapter 40, they have completed the tabernacle. They have set everything up. And what we read in verse 34, it says, The cloud of the Lord covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle. This discussion of overshadowing is the same word that's used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe the Spirit of the Lord descending and covering Mary. His glory wraps her up. And it is by virtue of this process that he engenders, that he creates a life in her. And it goes on, it says, and he will be called holy, the Son of God, the virgin birth of Jesus. is something Scripture gives ready testimony of. But it's something so often that we're hesitant to speak of. Because we're like, oh, you know, it's just... Like, it's just kind of confusing. Like, I can't really explain how a virgin would get pregnant with the Son of God, Matt. You're not supposed to be able to explain it. You take it on the basis of faith, and God has written and described it in such a way as to say, this is what transpired. This is what happened. And so as we go through and we read about the case of, of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Old people get pregnant all the time. I see it on the internet every week. <laughs> Dead people get pregnant in the tabloids, but old people get pregnant all the time. What we see is that people that are virgins don't get pregnant. It's not improbable. It's not unlikely. It is impossible. It's not impro improbable. 
It's not something you look at and you say, oh, you got about, you know, like, uh, you know, it's like a thousand to one odds. It's one in 18,000. It's one in, in a quadrillion. Oh, you, can, you know, you can win the lottery or a virgin can get pregnant. It is impossible. It's not happening. Humanly speaking, it's not going to happen. But she died. Why? God demonstrates his power over the barren. God demonstrates his power in bringing life to be in a couple who is unable to have children. Listen to this. Everybody with me? God brings his power to bear in the life of a couple who is older and unable to have children, and he accomplishes something that everybody says, that's awesome. Bravo. I mean, that's, that's amazing. I mean, it's kind of a first century in vitro. It's, 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 you know, she's taking all these shots. You've got her on hormone treatments. No, he's able to bring life to bear in this old couple. But in this, what we see, he is able to accomplish the impossible. Look at verse 36. And behold, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and is in the sixth month with the one who is called barren. She was so barren that this was her nickname. This is how people knew her. Now, you're talking about like fruitful Elizabeth or barren Elizabeth. Like, this is a conversation that could have been had. You're talking about the woman that can have kids or can't have kids. Oh, the one that can't. Okay, well, yeah, I know her. She's pregnant. <gasps> really? Like, not the fruitful, like the one with like the 15 kids. No, like the one who's never had them. Barren girl lives down the way. Yeah, her, barren girl. She's, what? That's unlikely. That's improbable. But possible. It's not, without, it's not outside the realm of possibilities. But when he causes a virgin to be pregnant, he accomplishes the impossible. Look at verse 37. For nothing is impossible with God. The account of Mary becoming pregnant, of Mary conceiving, the account of the angel going to her isn't written to create sentimentality in us. It is written to display the goodness and the greatness of this God who is able to accomplish the impossible. He's able to bring about this situation that will lead to the salvation of humanity by not overcoming tremendous odds, but by overcoming the impossible. He overcomes the improbable in Elizabeth becoming pregnant. He overcomes the impossible, the impossible with Mary becoming pregnant. I want us to look at this. Look at Mary's response in verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. She says, I am a doulos of the Lord. I am a slave of the Lord. In essence, she's saying, it is not my will, it's not my desire, but the desires of God that will be done in my life. And look what she goes on to say. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary is sold out to be a follower of Yahweh God. And so God comes to her in the most unlikely of places, this byword city in the middle of nowhere. And he tells her that she will conceive, that she will carry the one who will be the Messiah, the Son of God, that a virgin will get pregnant. 
she's not left trying to rationalize this, trying to think, well, this is going to sound nut burgers to my friends. They're not going to get this, let alone Joseph when we have our little conversation. How did this happen? Oh, well, you're never going to believe it. The darndest thing. And as we see in, in the other accounts of the gospel, the angel goes and speaks to Joseph. God sends the angel Gabriel the special message for Mary that would forever alter the fabric of humanity. And he accomplishes the impossible by bringing a child to be alive, conceived into the womb of a virgin. You know, we read this and we say, Oh God, you're able to do the impossible. But we pray for the probable. God, you're able to do the impossible, but we pray for the likely. We recognize that, friends, God has already worked the impossible in each and every one of our lives. First place he worked the impossible was causing his son to be born of a virgin. The second place he worked the impossible was bringing this son who died for your sins back from life. He resurrected Jesus after three days. He had not swooned. He was not faking death. He did not have a long and acute cold. Jesus died, and God worked the impossible. Just as he worked the impossible in causing him to be born alive of a virgin, so too he worked the impossible in causing him to be born alive again and raised and ascended. We also recognize that God works the impossible when he brings the spiritually dead to life. So we know that some of us who have husbands, some of us who have wives, some of us who have children that are lost and we're dismayed. So we're, we're tempted to wonder, God, is there any hope? Is there, is there any chance that maybe if, if, if I say the right things, maybe if I do the right things, maybe if I act the right way, they'll be positively engendered and just kind of come to faith almost before they realize they have. Almost like they're slipping closer and closer to Jesus, then all of a sudden they're like, Dad, come and I'm a Christian. When did that happen? You tricked me into becoming a Christian. Well, we recognize that in someone who is spiritually dead, they cannot be tricked into becoming spiritually alive. When someone is spiritually dead, it takes a supernatural, impossible work of God to produce life in them. The same thing has happened in my life. The same thing, if you're a believer in faith in Jesus Christ, has happened in your life. Ephesians chapter 2 opens up and it says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you were submitted to supernatural, physical, and, and forces all around you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in the way in which you once walked. But we recognize that God, God came close to you in the person of Jesus... And verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead. Everybody say, we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses. He has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God sends the angel Gabriel to Mary, and he says, Oh, 
graced one. It's the same word. You have found favor. You have found, same word, grace before God. Jesus would be born of the Virgin Mary and Jesus' death has the ability, the power to produce life in you. That according to Ephesians 3.17, by the power of the love of God, Jesus might take up residence in your heart. What we see in looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, is not a picture designed to produce sentimentality in us, but to produce life in us through the shed blood of Jesus on a cross. Would you join me in praying? Father, I thank you that, God, that it's not that you set about to do the unlikely or the improbable, but you accomplished the impossible. God, you didn't do something that, that we are, are able to do, but just with a lot of work and technology, but that you're able to do, you did something impossible. And so, Father, we thank you for that. God, I thank you that you've also worked the impossible in my heart. That you called me from death to life. That you awakened me to my sinfulness, to my rebellion. You awakened me to my need for Jesus. To be forgiven. And God, that as you brought that grace into my life, so too I was able to repent of my sins. And you brought faith to bear in my life. You have produced life among my formerly dead members, that I was spiritually dead, but you have made me alive. So God, as a body of gathered believers, we are preeminently thankful that you have done that in each and every one of our lives. And Father, we pray for those who have yet to surrender themselves to you. Not they doubt this or that, they're struggling with this or that. Father, I pray that you would find them in submission to yourself, that you would work the impossible in their lives. You would see them, that we would see them move from death to life. For the kingdom of darkness to light. That they might find freedom and release in the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for your great love for us. And Father, as we move into this Christmas season, I pray that as our stores are already stocking Christmas trees and we're not yet past Thanksgiving, God, that we would use the discussion of the ridiculous consumeristic nature of our society to talk about the gracious gift of Jesus Christ. It's the thing you can't buy on a shelf. It's the, the thing you can't give, gift away. It's the thing you can't buy for yourself. But it's the thing that you gave, Father. So God, help us to be wise with our words and to make the most of the time. And I pray that you would help us to respond to your word as you've applied it to our lives by the power of your spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.